0: Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they're achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen.
1: And welcome to the Multifamily Five. Excited today to have uh, one of our own, uh, Todd Franks, Managing Director here at SVN Investment Sales Group. Um, I'll let Todd introduce himself, but uh, Todd's a mentor to me, and Todd's been uh, starting the business back in the early 2000s, so he's been uh, in multifamily or commercial real estate brokerage now for almost 20 years. Todd, great to have you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: So if, if you just want to go ahead and uh, you know give a bit about your background, your experience, and uh, w- what you're focused on today.
0: I started brokering in the year 2000 at a boutique firm called the Cantrell company. Uh, the two principals were the top producers for Marcus and Millichap in the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, they started the firm in in about 97 and I joined in 2000, uh, and have been brokering B and C class multifamily ever since. Great. So Todd, uh, Todd jumped
1: over and started the SVN um, office here. What was that? 2000?
0: 2014. Uh, just hit our four-year mark about a month ago. And uh, it was myself and another broker that came over. Uh, we have grown exponentially since that time. Uh, we have increased to 10 brokers, five support staff, uh, and um, have almost doubled our yearly gross revenue every year since
1: opening the office. Um, and Todd was uh, one of the top brokers across the country. Uh, I think number five SVN, number five, broker, yep. top producing. Um, and uh, what was focused a little more on growing the office and uh, putting systems in place. Um, like you said, we're up to 10 brokers now. Um, but uh, w- we're having a good time this year. And uh, I think we brokered 43 total transactions last year of almost 200 and
0: um yeah we were uh almost 200 million we were uh right at about 180 million i believe
1: yeah so anyways we'll stop uh tooting our horn here and kind of get into this um so todd you've obviously been around since the early 2000s you've seen you've seen an upcycle. you've seen a recession um what are your what are your feelings, what are your sentiments about this year in 2018 uh, with regard to the multifamily industry? Um, you can, you know, tailor it specifically to Texas since, you know, that's where we're primarily operating. Um, so what are your sentiments about this year and, and beyond this year?
0: Um, well, this year, uh, it's going to be another excellent year. I think transaction volume-wise from a brokerage perspective, uh, we should hit 2017. Uh, levels again in 2018 Uh, I feel like more owners are more open to selling their assets now they have achieved their return goals and uh, we're seeing more product on the market at the beginning of 2018 as compared to the beginning of 2017 we did by far the majority of our transactions on the back half of 2017 Uh, this year I think uh, we'll outperform the first half by probably almost three times of what we did last year. So we'll see how the year ends. If that pace continues, it could be a much better year than it was last year.
1: Yeah. So goes both ways, I guess. Good for both uh, sellers who are capitalized on, uh, on their investment, um, but also buyers. There's a lot of product out there on the market. Uh, seems like a great time to, to sell and even 1031 exchange, whether you're, Selling uh, or looking to buy here locally in Dallas, Fort Worth, or even another market. Um, So, Todd, what kind of things are you seeing um, investors do in this market to really separate themselves, um, just from the competition, but also um, among brokers as well? And and maybe it's you know maybe it's separating themselves among other buyers, but uh, you know also build relationships. Um, with brokers to maybe get that pre-market or soft-market or off-market deal?
0: Um, Well, there's several things. I mean, there's three components to any offer, and that's price, terms, and the qualification of the buyer. So uh, price is usually the driving decision maker, assuming the other two, Um, terms and qualifications of the buyer are are equal. You know, everyone's looking to max out price. So as long as you're qualified as a buyer, uh, you should, and your terms are competitive, uh, you should be up there competing. What what we are seeing is, um, you know, people stretching uh, to get values. It's more of a performa-driven market than it has been historically for Dallas-Fort Worth. When I started brokering early on in 2000, I mean, we would underwrite a C-class property in a C-class area at a 10 cap, so the math was a lot easier back then. Uh, but, you know, and then we'd perform around a 12%. Um, and basically, this is because, you know, you couldn't get agency debt on a C-class type asset at that time. A uh, uh, General financing terms would be about an 8% interest rate, 25-year amortization, so uh, then CMBS loans you know, became the rage uh, in the last part of the last cycle. Uh, if you had a deal that needed a loan of five million or more, it was relatively easy to obtain that financing through CMBS, uh, a non-recourse type loan, and that was 2005 through 2007. Uh, and you know, almost any investor would qualify for that loan and. Uh, you know, we all know how that ended. Um, once the spigot was turned off of easy money, uh, the market corrected quickly, and uh, a lot of those assets uh, and investors did not make it through the end of that cycle. But uh, after CMBS, um, which was cheaper and easier, uh, is just a cheaper and easier source of debt than the agency debt at the time, and really Fannie Mae was the only player at that time. Freddie. Mac, during the last cycle, did more A-class and high-end B-class type assets. But uh, Fannie Mae was the primary provider for multifamily loans. Um, so uh, investors you know, were scrutinized uh, more closely by the agencies than they were by CMBS. Uh, you know, it was great that the agencies were there after the market crashed. I, I feel like it really saved the multifamily market in DFW, the recession could have been much worse, much longer than it was. Um, but, you know, the agencies really bailed us out. Um, and that, that was the, the best source of financing. And financing really drives any deal, I feel. You know, someone can go out and get a loan and they can leverage and it's at a good debt service coverage ratio where they're comfortable they can make it. Um, that's what's going to determine price. But the next big game changer that came along was uh, Freddie Mac small balance program Uh, that came online late in 2014 and the impact that it had on smaller multifamily assets was significant. I mean, you know, now non recourse agency debt was available for, you know, uh, five million and less. You know, very small in small multifamily properties. This just wasn't the case before. It increased the amortization. It lowered the interest rate. It lowered the liability by, you know, allowing non recourse. And at the beginning of the process, the cost of putting that loan in place was very low. Uh, so there was almost no reason not to do it. I, I saw it increase the, the price on smaller multifamily properties. Um, that coupled with our rising rental rates and our good fundamentals that were driving occupancy. Uh, we really saw values explode kind of post 2014 in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Um, so, you know, I think, I feel like the next uh, wave, if you will, for good debt would be on the single family portfolio side. Uh, we are seeing, the agencies enter that market. Uh, Freddie Mac now has a uh, single-family portfolio program. They are looking for larger loans right now, basically you know ten million and up in loan dollars. Uh, we're seeing them start to bend on that and dip down below that ten million mark. But they're also offering incentives for uh, to get more of those loans in place. Uh, I just got a call this morning on a portfolio we were working on financing through this program. And in order to incentivize the borrower to move along a little quicker, uh, they said that Freddie Mac is offering uh, some to to cover some of the fees throughout the loan process. And uh, they were also lowering their rate a little bit uh, to incentivize more people into this product type. So basically I've seen loans drive values up. Of course, this is in conjunction with market fundamentals and – um, I feel like the next next asset class that's going to benefit from this are the single family portfolios. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, um, to the question, um, what are investors doing to separate themselves among other buyers? It seems like price would be the biggest the biggest item. Um, and uh, two, well, for me, I, I know quick feedback. Uh, is important. So investors that can, you know, run a deal real quick, maybe just high level information, give you some quick feedback. And and this obviously is above and beyond uh, the relationship piece. You know, people are going to do uh, business together with those they know, like, and trust. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that a lot of times it's going to the highest bidder, but uh, maybe you can speak a little bit to some of the other terms that are coming into play. And this kind of w- w- ties into my next question, which is um, how investors are separating themselves in best and final rounds. Um, So, you know, we we have had listed deals uh, that have been fully marketed and we have uh, buyers that come in at a higher price, um, but surety of closing is definitely a a bigger piece or just as big as piece as well. So if you want to speak to that.
0: That's exactly what I was going to say. A surety of closing, if you can get that to, you know, get the comfortable seller with the fact that, Um, You are going to close regardless of any items that may come up. Of course, non-refundable earnest money is big in today's market. Uh, The more, the better up front. Uh, We are seeing seven-figure non-refundable earnest money uh, day one on deals that, you know, an aggressive buyer that maybe already owns in that submarket or sees some potential upside on a deal beyond what the rest of the market is. You know, they're, they're willing to commit a lot of money and, and give that seller surety of closing. I've had an incident recently where um, I've had a buyer willing to take a half a million dollars less on a, you know, that and that equated to approximately um, a 7% reduction in price uh, for the non-refundable earnest money offer. Uh, On the deal, so they just wanted surety of closing. Every deal is different, every seller is different. Um, I would always ask, Hey, what's important to the seller? Is it terms? Is it price? Um, Is it qualification of the buyer? You know, what can I do to help prove to this seller that I'm the best choice? And, you know, what are their driving motivations? So, uh, you know, to put it in a box, those are the three. I guess put it in a triangle. Those are the three sides of the triangle, really. Uh, price terms, qualification of the buyer, you need to prove those three things. Um, but always ask, you know, what's the most important component of the sale to the seller?
1: <clears throat> and another thing, I don't know if this is was really evident in the last cycle, but it, I don't think really any deals are getting done today uh, in the BNC space without hard money uh, up front. Usually day one, you know, some may offer a, a three, five, seven uh, day look. But what we see a lot if for those that, you know, may not be comfortable putting hard money day one, uh, we see a lot of buyers working in an access agreement. Um, essentially, that allows them uh, access to the property to do some high level inspections on mechanicals. Um, and maybe some, uh, you know, to, to look at uh, make sure there's clean title. Uh, maybe a, a past environmental inspection, so so just some high-level documents as well, so they feel comfortable coming in day one with uh, non-refundable earnest money to, uh, to make their offer more competitive.
0: Yes, it's there, done during the letter of intent phase. So, you know, once it, the letter of intent is executed, if you can have an access agreement be part of that letter of intent, uh, that will allow like you said, the buyer to come in there and do a high-level inspection, maybe walk the vacant units, um, common area, mechanical, structural, uh, get a good warm fuzzy. At the same time, simultaneously, you are negotiating the contract, uh, and by the time you execute the contract, you're comfortable with the bones and the general uh, due diligence uh, on the building to be like, yeah, I can make this work.
1: Yeah, and we're doing – quite a bit of, of inventory off market, you know, maybe half and half, but um, we did, a, we worked through a lot of best and final rounds last year. Uh, Todd, are there any stories that you might have of things not to do in a best and final round? Typically, you know, you're, selecting uh, as a broker, three to five or recommending rather uh, three to five uh, offers to the seller and the seller is going to do um, an interview maybe with the top three that they, they pick. Um, And it's going to vary from deal to deal and and seller to seller. Um, But typically the the seller wants to ask specific questions to make sure, uh, just to give them some comfortability with with that buyer. So Todd, any stories of of things not to do?
0: Uh, Yes, I've got a great story to share. On a larger deal that we closed at the beginning of this year, um, it's over 800 units in Houston, Going into the best and final round, we thought we knew who the buyer was and we went and did buyer interviews with the top four, uh, that made the best and final round. And, you know, we really wanted to pick someone that, you know, gave us a surety of closing because it was a tick like ownership structure. So surety of closing was more important on this one. Um, The buyer that we thought was going to win did not interview well at all. Uh, They were going to insert $30,000 per unit in capital improvements. That's $30,000 per unit in capital improvements. So when the question was asked, is there anything that you could find that would make you not move forward with the deal? they did start hemming and hawing and saying, well, you know, if we had um, an environmental issue, we've seen some really strange stuff where, um, you know, structurally, you know, you had a a real foundation problem on one building uh, and, you know, we've had to go back to the seller for a credit on something like that. And, you know, they gave us a bunch of uh, examples of basically what, you know, could cause a potential renegotiation of the price or cause them to drop the deal. Now, they had a substantial amount of non-refundable earnest money up front, so you would think that the seller would almost not care and be like, great, I have, you know, all this non-refundable earnest money, I'll just go on and sell it to the next person. That's not the case, Generally, when you go under contract, you want to close. You're not trying to take anyone's earnest money, and I'd say that's true of 99% of sellers. So they did not interview well at all. And I cannot imagine what sort of deferred maintenance or problem you might find that you couldn't fix with $30,000 per unit on an 800 unit deal. Um, (laughs) So So that was the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's what they should have said. I'm inserting 30,000 per unit into this deal. I can't imagine what I would find. Uh, So they, they did not answer that way. Unfortunately Uh, the number two buyer uh, down the list did answer that way and uh, they ended up winning the deal. So, you know, I think you have to be careful with your words. You just got to give the seller confidence that you're going to move forward. Uh, and everyone understands, you know, barring some unforeseen circumstance that, um, you know, no one would know about. Uh, like bad environmental would be a good example of one of them. You know, something with titles can, that cannot be cleared. Uh, we had a situation where we discovered on one property, uh, HUD had a profit sharing component uh, that was filed in the deed. So whenever you sold that property, none of the operational Profits were shared with HUD during the ownership, but upon exit, you would have to share anywhere between 75 and 25 percent of the profit, based on a you know step-down type structure over the years. Uh, that was a surprise that came up. No one knew about it. Seller didn't know about it because they purchased the note and got a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Uh, so there was no profit upon their acquisition of the property, and it just was never found. Uh, prior to their purchase. So, uh, that caused the deal to fall apart and, you know, the seller understood, um, they weren't looking to take the buyer's earnest money, even though they had non-refundable earnest money, um, and said, you know, look, this is something we can't clear off title. So, you know, it's obviously an out. So barring an unforeseen circumstance like that, um, I think, you know, you, that's probably the correct way to answer that question is, uh, hey, there's nothing unless there's just something so crazy that no one would buy it.
1: Great. And you've probably toured thousands of buyers over the years. What's one interesting or creative strategy um, you've heard an investor discuss implementing?
0: Um, currently, you know, the, there's the in-town projects, uh, you know, let's say Oak Lawn, Uptown, East Dallas, you know, excellent locations. Um, where there's a change of use for the property, uh, Airbnb being the number one currently. Uh, people think that, you know, on a smaller property, let's call it less than 50 units, they can convert a substantial portion of them to Airbnb uh, units and, and, you know, increase the income that way. You know, corporate housing, that, that's what they used to call it before it was Airbnb. You could lease out those units, furnish them, and have short-term leases, um so the, and I've the most interesting one that I've worked in was um a gentleman I sold uh a small apartment complex off of Lower Greenville to and he converted it to a uh use for people with chemical sensitivities and severe allergies. So the units that they stay in, they almost stay in like a clean room type environment. Um where there are no VOCs, nothing off gases, you know, everything is, um, uh, and it also is short-term leases. It almost runs like a hotel, if you will, about 50% stay for years, and the other 50% stay for less than six months. Uh, so that's a, an interesting conversion use. Uh, the pe- there's a doctor here in Dallas that treats for people with severe, cal- severe allergies and chemical sensitivities, and so people come from all over the world to be treated by this doctor. So that is a very niche use. Um, Another kind of more common one, and this is, it's rare. These are all rare. Um, But I'd say this is more common, as I've seen folks take properties from uh, individually metered to all bills paid. Uh, In certain sub-markets, that works great. Uh, I see the branding of all services instead of all bills paid. And, uh, you know, they'll put in a little fitness center and, Uh, you know, some other nice amenities and say, hey, this is part of the services that we're giving you with this rent is you have access to this workout facility. Um, I've even seen (laughs) owners bring in yoga instructors certain days of the week uh, in their fitness facilities to have a higher end one. Uh, So, you know, offering a lot of services and getting a premium for them, is always a great change of use to get more income, but it is management intensive. So I feel like you're paying for it in time. Uh, there's a lot of folks that, you know, uh, for example, during the last cycle, um, at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, running out laundry equipment was very, very popular. And that went on for about three years. And then everyone realized it was a real pain and it wasn't very profitable and, Common thing you'll hear owners say or management companies is that I'm not in the laundry equipment leasing business, and they don't want to delve into that they'll just refer out a company that does that professionally so um, any any services that you can add that add extreme value um, they are you know they'll add value to the complex, but um, you can also you know get dinged coming out uh, because if it reverts back to its previous use. Uh, it's gonna. That's how a lender is gonna loan on it. Is as if it were a regular, stable, comped-out multifamily property, and not one with this unique use. So I feel it really drive While it drives cash flow, I mean, ultimately on the exit, um, it might drive some value up, but you're not going to get a 100 percent credit for your change of use.
1: Yeah, and something else that I've come across recently was a. Was an investor who would buy a property. Let's call it 200 units, and he's a sophisticated owner-operator that uh, that owns here in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. But he will he would ask, uh, are there multiple parcels? And he would put a uh, Freddie Mac small balance loan to get a lower interest rate on each of those parcels. I haven't ran the numbers, and I, I would just assume, uh, given his sophistication, that it makes sense. But he usually goes in and then will refinance the loans. Um, to put it to put a new loan after he's uh, added his value and he'll pay the prepayment penalty uh, through Freddie um, to, to put a new loan and return money to investors. Uh, so, anyways, uh, Todd, what's the best way to listeners to get in touch with you?
0: Uh, you can always call me. That's uh, easy enough. It's nine seven two nine one six. Ninety three ninety seven, and my email address is super easy as well. It's my name, Todd T O D D dot Franks F R A N K S at svn dot com, like Sam Victor Nancy dot com. Todd, thanks for joining us today. I enjoyed having
1: you on the show. Um, really excited about this year, what we have going on. So look forward to closing some deals here soon.
0: Me too. Thanks for the opportunity.